longtime listeners and Patreon people know that the Super Friends transition sound is usually where I interrupt or break something to speak directly to you. So I'm doing that here um, last night. So Wednesday, the uh, what was yesterday's date? Yesterday, the 5th of April, uh, I was supposed to do the writer's chat as I normally do. Now, uh, there was a let's call it a last minute emergency. I think that's the best way to say it. That cost me literally like a minute or so from hitting the go live button, uh, caused me to have to scrap everything. And uh, it, it, well, to be plain and simple about it, it really fucked up my evening. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, today I can kind of go through the chat in sort of just its audio only format. Uh, minus some of the usual bells and tweaks you get for the chat. I hope I hope you don't mind. Um, so I'm pulling. I'm I'm going to redo all the questions. I'm going to go through it as per normal. Uh, minus, of course, the sections where I stop and talk to chat. Minus the the usual intro because I just want to do this and and get to the good meat of the stuff. So I appreciate your patience. I appreciate you um, tolerating some of this applesauce and mayonnaise nonsense. And uh, let's let's get started with the usual podcast intro. How's that sound? All right, here we go. I will never write a single line which I have not first felt in my own heart. He'll teach you everything. Truer words were never spoken. All right. Language and writing were made available. I'm writing this down. This is good stuff. All right, here we go. Question number one. If a work, a TV show, a movie, a game, is based on an unpublished story, is the adaptation the original vision of that work? Okay. We're going to get a lot of questions like this uh, because there was a whole, there was an article that came out recently that Amazon had acquired an unpublished short story and was already developing it for screen presentation, probably with Michael B. Jordan, according to the article. And this really uh, set me off because I, I wanted to be able to kind of give hope to short story writers. I talk to a lot of them and they tend to do like one line of thinking that I'm making short stories. It has to be an anthology because typically short stories and short story writers don't build and find an audience as uh, aggressively or assertively or as easily as uh, large scale regular novel fiction does mainly because the assumption is that short form fiction is in some way lesser uh, not just fewer words, but of lesser quality. So uh, they struggle to build that foothold and traction commercially. And in hearing that an unpublished story, I can't even like find you notes beyond like a, a single link to this paragraph. An unpublished story suddenly becomes adapted. What is that adaptation called? And arguably that adaptation is still an adaptation the original vision of the work still remains in the unpublished story that birthed the adaptation because the adaptation has to come from somewhere. But what's going to happen sort of in the bigger picture, most of the people 
the the viewers of this material, the average public and all that, will see the adaptation as the original vision of the work because they don't really know beyond like a note that'll probably pop up in the credits like based on or adapted from. Uh, they'll think that the 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 movie, the TV show, the game, whatever the the adapted property is the main property in the same way that we think or, or a lot of people think Arrival is its own thing and not in fact based on a really really well made short story this happens a lot this idea that the adaptation sort of uh doesn't necessarily absorb but it subsumes the the original piece of material uh if you're out there writing and you, and you're aiming to get your stuff adapted like i'm going to write this show and it's going to get picked up by netflix or i'm going to write this book and it's going to turn into this or it's going to do that don't don't skip the part where you focus on making the thing you want to adapt, the source material. Don't skip the part where you make the source material the best you can. That's probably the easiest way for me to say that. On to the next question. Question number two, following up on that. If a story is published after its adaptation in another media, is the story viewed as lesser because it came out second? No, lesser lesser is the word here I, I take exception to or I, I challenge a little. It's not about lesser and greater. It's about what's going to get attention versus what's not going to get attention. And it, it's not so much that the story is automatically bad because this, this isn't the same as saying like, here's a movie, this is the novelization of the movie. This is more like, oh, this is the thing that the, the movie came from. This is the source material. It doesn't make the source lesser. It's just not going to get as much traction because this other thing came out first. If I tell you, if you didn't know better that uh, the Born Identity with Matt Damon from, you know, 15, 20 years ago was first a book from way back in the day, um, you wouldn't necessarily view it as lesser, but you probably wouldn't care as much. Now, the, the book and the movie in, in the Born Identity case are two very different things. They're, you know, the Born Identity is of its time and more modern, whereas the the born identity book deals with carlos the jackal and you know vietnam era you know stuff on some level but it doesn't really come out as lesser it just doesn't get enough attention it just doesn't it's seen as like an oh by the way there's also this other thing ah okay and it, it doesn't it doesn't diminish in value it just it its growth and its exposure is hampered by the larger more accessible media was kind of standing in front of it and, you know, casting a long shadow, if that makes sense. Next one. Okay, we're going to follow this up with the third question. At what point does a, question three, at what point does a work portrayed in two media or mediums differ enough to be considered a separate work? This is a ship of Theseus argument. This is the idea that if we take a thing and we start changing its pieces, at what point does it become a new thing, and what, at what point does it re remain to be the original thing? And there isn't a clear, like, math universally agreed on number where, oh, have you changed? It's not like we're making knockoff, like, jewelry or furniture or bags or something, and we have to change a certain percentage in order to avoid, like, litigation. That, that's how we get from Rolex to Molex kind of a thing. There isn't an agreed-upon... Uh, point for that in media mainly because the amount of things you can adapt is is huge we could 
gender flip. We can change casting. We can change names. We can change plot. We can uh, add extra characters. We can we can do so many things. It isn't just the same as you know. Let's slap a different coat of paint on it and call it essentially the the same thing. We you want to make sure that it for the sake of contracts, it is a separate work the minute it goes into a separate medium, and even though it is a derivative work because we're taking from one thing to make a new thing, um, it is still functionally mostly that work. And as long as it is, as it is properly credited, depending on what medium we're going to and what media, media we're coming from, as long as it is properly credited and acknowledged, it's considered its, its own separate thing that is related or tangential. The Venn diagram overlaps when we talk about the original work. That's how we get like the Born Identity movie versus the Born Identity book or how we get Mission Impossible, the TV show, and the Mission Impossible, the movies, stuff like that. But there's no magic agreed upon, like, 12%, change 12% of things. It, it, I wish it were something simple like that, but at the same time, that kind of rigid simplicity would really, I think, limit the way we adapt things, because everybody would start adapting it in roughly the same way, change this, change, you know, if we had a recipe to always follow, we'd get more sameness rather than more creative adaptation. So, no. There isn't a point, and it's really up to the author to sort from the source to their adaptation, what they're adapting, to what degree they're adapting it, and why they're adapting it. It's authorial power at that point. On we go to question four. Question four, totally changing track. Should I follow popular trends when I title my work, such as the noun of noun and noun, or the adjective noun? Should is the word I'm poking at here. It It's not... Okay, titling is really difficult, and I, I will admit I'm not the greatest titling person. The point, however, is just because it's a trend doesn't mean you have to do it. It often ends up that if you have a title for your book, whatever it is, and the publisher decides, ah, I don't like this title. And that can basically be an opinion that, that is not... There's no like mathematical metric applied to it there's no formula it's just that they don't think this title is engaging enough they don't think this title is going to compel someone to acquire it should the book be looked up online or looked at in a store or whatever a publisher isn't a publisher really wants that title to be you know like oh that's yeah that's something that's interesting and a lot of titles don't because the publisher isn't looking at it in terms of what title best serves the story they are looking at it in terms of what title will sell this book. Now, partner that with the idea that they publishers look at what books are currently selling. And they don't so much look at it for their narrative value. They just look at the fact that it's popular. And some somebody somewhere is going to assume that one of the things that makes it popular is the cover and the title. And they... Everybody does this sort of simultaneously but independently so that you, that's how you end up with a million books being named in the same titling trend because they see somebody doing it and then somebody else does it and then somebody else does it and then somebody comes along and doesn't want to be left out so they do it too. Is it a bad trend? No, but there are so many books that follow the noun of noun and noun or the adjective noun that you, you just... It's hard to tell them apart if you didn't know what you were looking for. They all sort of sound the same after a while. They all sort of look the same after a while. So let me, let me tell you this. You don't have to do this. I don't know if your publisher will always do this should you go down the traditional publishing route. 
your title, whatever it might be, should really do its best to be evocative for the book, not evocative for the sale. Let other machinery, let other stuff do the lifting on the sale part. Your title is to sort of put uh, an emphatic period or exclamation point on the on the book itself. And it works together in concert with that back blurb and with that cover to encourage someone to read it. Because from your perspective as a writer, you're aiming for readership. The sale is is nice and good. And yes, we all like sales. But it's it's incidental relative to the fact that somebody read my book and somebody liked my book. So whether the title is the noun of noun and noun or the adjective noun or the adverb noun or adverb or something with some colons or m dashes or something aim for a title that is evocative to you and chances are it'll be fine i can't say for certain but the more evocative you can be from the base the less likely the publisher is to change it the less likely you are to fall into the trap of needing to follow this trend just for the sake of following a trend next question Question number five, what makes one writing course worth $9,000 and another course worth $2,500 and a third course worth $125? I hate this. Well, I mean, I love this question, but I hate this concept. There are people out there in the world, writing adjacent people like myself, who are aimed to help writers do things. And one of the ways people do do that help is through the the offering of courses. Now, from a business perspective and a tech bro perspective and a productivity bro perspective, those courses become sources of passive income because you can just create it once and then roll it out every once in a while, maybe once or twice a year, and it's allegedly stable income. And it's it's usually a lot of money because these courses, at least for some of the people, aren't cheap. Like $9,000 is the legit price of a course. Now, I don't know if that course is any good. I, in my life, have had $9,000 exactly once. And at no point did it ever occur to me when I had that $9,000 to take a writing course with it. And if you were to go to the website and you're going to go look at all the testimonials and you're going to go look at, at the effusive praise the courses get, because it sure seems like a lot of it, it'll give you the impression that, hell yeah, it's totally worth the $9,000. Or the, or the $2,500 even. And it will leverage this idea of, well, the price tag's so high because it's just so good. And that'll turn you to look at the third course at $125 and go, well, that must suck because it's not the $9,000 one. This is the this is the way they pit courses against one another from the, right, from the creating of the course side. Person A says, my course is $9,000 because I want $9,000. And the content might not be worth $9,000, but I'm going to create an atmosphere around it to give you the impression that it's worth $9,000. Whether or not it actually helps you, whether or not it's actually $9,000 worth of time and talent and skill, I don't know. I can't say. I couldn't say that for the $2,500 or the $125 either. But course creators, one of their, their surreptitious ways to kind of make you pick them over somebody else is to extol the virtues while extol the virtues of the course while not necessarily um, speaking that well of other courses. The idea of, well, I'm $9,000, so it's it's luxury, and luxury always means good. Luxury doesn't always mean good. Everybody wants to create that sense of FOMO, this idea of if you don't sign up for my thing, well, you must not really want to be serious because a serious price tag is for a serious writer. 
And that that's not great either. That's just that's just sales. That's just grift at some point. Because what exactly would you expect for nine thousand dollars? For nine thousand dollars, I would expect a human being to talk to me individually. I wouldn't want you know fifteen videos from a Dropbox. I wouldn't want you know the sort of random thing and a template to homogenize my work with everybody else's. I'd want a human being to be like, "Hey, John, what questions do you have specifically today?" And let's talk about them. I would want individuated, tailored advice, and I would want somebody to sit down and actually treat me like a whole ass person rather than just one cog in a machine. Same for 2,500. For 125, I can, I could see sort of it being kind of broad depending on how it is. But even at 125, I would not be opposed to somebody sitting down and going, hi, John, what's up? This is a thing just for you. Because that's what I want out of a course. That's, that's what I offer in, in coaching. That's what I, you know, will offer in a course to some degree and I, I sit here and it just makes me angry. And I'm trying to put that anger to one side. And I'm putting that anger to one side because the writers I know don't have $9,000 to spend on a course. And I don't care what kind of uh, payment plan you offer. $9,000 for writing advice. When you know a first-time author is probably going to spend roughly that same amount in producing a book is, is disgusting. Also, if you're going to make it generic and just talk about the basics of writing structure for $9,000 go become a community college professor, go do that better offering a course and then saying, well, look at all these people who have been published and they rave about my course that those results vary based on person. Those results, those results vary on uh, a number of factors. The course can't control and $9,000 is a lot of money to somebody who's just trying to get better at a thing. It's almost predatory as the price escalates on things and the amount of FOMO they use to give you the sense of you better do this. You don't want to be the only person not doing it. As price escalates and FOMO escalates, the more predatory the sales factor becomes and the more manipulative the sales copy becomes with a number of exclamation points and testimonials and all these things to make it sound really good. But you'll also, if you take a look at some of these upper end over $2,000 courses, you'll start to see that they talk less and less about the content specifically and more about how great the content is. And if you have to talk about how great a thing is without showing what the thing is that's great, it, it kind of feels like you're trying to get somebody to not look behind the curtain and see how see the little man back there pulling the levers. Whereas the lower-priced courses generally tend to be very much out on front street when it comes to, here's what you're getting for your money. Now, that said, the upper-level courses leverage that against the smaller courses price courses because wow look at that fool with his $125 course he's an idiot for telling you exactly what it is but if we take this outside the realm of writing which is a pretty emotionally vulnerable space for people and it's a pretty uh, tremendous issue when it comes to oh my god I need to pay to get some help and it becomes this whole big messy thing because you bring money in and you bring a want of success and creativity in the whole thing gets messy very quickly if, if we put that all to the side if, if you were going to spend that much money, you'd want to see the thing you're buying. If it's a, an appliance, if it's a, a piece of furniture, if it's, so, if it's you know, something specific for your home or for you, you'd want to know what you're spending that much money on. That is, you know, $9,000 is not a small amount of money. And to just kind of plunk it down on your, your credit card and, and just kind of, you know, tie yourself to it is, is no small mean feat. And 
these courses don't consider that. Yeah, they offer a payment plan, you know, like three payments of three thousand dollars. They they don't stop to consider that it's three thousand dollars. That's that's a mortgage payment. That's rent payment for people. That's groceries. That's meds for their kids. That's meds for themselves. That's you know existence, existential money. I don't know if there's particularly material differences between what the 9,000, 2,500 and the 125 course teaches. Maybe one of those courses does just traditional publishing. Maybe one of those courses just does romance novels. I don't know. But if you're going to evaluate a course and figure out if it's valuable to you, once you're done with the sticker shock argument, and once you're done looking at the number of testimonials raving about their success after the fact, go look and see if there's a breakdown for what the course is. If they tell you what's what you get for $9,000, not just you get 12 videos. Okay, 12 videos of what? You get weekly emails. Okay, weekly emails about what? Poke at it. Go look for it. Don't just take their word for it. You're a consumer looking to make a purchase, and it's not an inconsiderable thing. This isn't like, you know, pay five bucks, get a cheeseburger. It's it's thousands of dollars, and it's a lot of work, and it's involving your creativity, and it's involving your long-term plans. So don't immediately assume that big price tag better, little price tag worse. Go look and see if it makes a difference in terms of what you want to do and how it helps you do that. Other than that, anybody who's willing to charge that much money but not tell you entirely specifically and exactly what it is is a coward and an absolute grifter, and they're basically peddling snake oil. If you can't tell me exactly what dollars 200 to 250 out of my $9,000 are doing, how am I supposed to know that it's going to help me? This isn't like wing and a prayer money. This is like substantial. And all these large courses about maximizing your this and, and revitalizing your that and, you know, empowering this, that, that's great language. That's, that's some lovely rhetoric. Now, how are you specifically going to help me? How are you going to address the writer that is me, whether that's me, John, or me, made-up fantasy writer or whatever? That individuation is what people are looking for. That not necessarily big price tag, big happy flashy shit, but what is it going to do to roll up their sleeves and encourage them, motivate them, and educate them? That's, the, that's what you should look for in courses. Not who's teaching it and how big a deal is it and how exclusive is it. Nobody gives a shit about that. They shouldn't give a shit about that. It should be the utility of the thing. How, how much is it helping you? Does that matter? It should. Should it matter more? Yes, because one of the things that happens is if you get somebody coming along and buying the $9,000 course, all they can do is use that some of that $9,000 to double down on the aesthetic, buy bigger, buy better camera gear, better lighting, a flashier website, and help create the illusion while also being able to talk less about the material. And that's the problem. That, that's the inverse of how it should be. You should be able to talk about the material. Because it's the material that's going to help you. It doesn't matter that the, the website had a really easy one-click fill-out form. It should matter that this course taught you something about how to write a scene or how to make a plot or how to query or how to market or how to sell or whatever. That's, that's really important. And when that doesn't happen, it, 
it's just shitty salespeople selling shit to people. That's unfair. That's wrong. So don't get hit with that sticker shock. I know it's hard. But go ask and go check and see what that course is doing and how it does it. And that's how you'll be able to figure out what course is best for you. I should point out that a lower price course is not necessarily the course for base writers. Don't assume that more expensive course, more advanced writers. Uh, it's mostly just who has money to throw. Be careful. Be wise with your choices. Look to see how helpful a thing is before you commit to it. Don't don't fall to the trap. I don't want you to. I'm, I'm worried so many people will. I can tell you from a course creator perspective, the anger I feel looking at a writing course that's $9,000. The anger I feel at a course that's $2,500. It's just straight anger. It's not even, it's not jealousy. I, I've been told in the past that, oh, John, you're just jealous. Uh, maybe, maybe to some degree I'm jealous that you had the balls to turn around and charge somebody $9,000. Like, how dare you? Because it would never occur to me to do that. I know my, I, I've got decades of experience, but I would never run an invoice on somebody for $9,000. That's, that's wild to me. First of all, if I did, it'd be a joke and nobody I know would just flat out go, yeah, sure, here you go. Now, maybe that attitude about money or that scarcity mindset or whatever bullshit you want to dress it up with is my problem. And maybe that speaks to a greater issue I need to take up in therapy. But at the same time, I also know the value of writing advice. I've been doing this a long goddamn time. And um, it would take a lot, like a year, 52 weeks, for a $9,000 course. You, It's possible to do it. I used to do it for $200. Um, but $9,000 is ridiculous to me. That's that's most of a car payment. That's nine months of mortgages. That's That's, that's plenty. I, I don't like, I don't like that the courses and the course creators, uh, shit all over each other. I don't, I don't like that. Um, I don't like feeling less than, I don't like feeling like I'm an idiot because I don't have a $9,000 course. I, I'm the guy with maybe the 125 or the $150 course. I'm, I'm the guy who's afraid to ask for the big money because I know that, Big money is crazy because $2,500 is a community college course. Like that's a, that's a school. That's, that's an institution. Not for YouTube videos and a mastermind phone call on a Zoom call or something. Like one of these days I should sit down and just stream this through and really think this out and get it all put together. But fundamentally, what I want you to look at when it comes to writing courses is the utility it has for you and be willing to question the ones who offer huge price tags and giant promises, but not necessarily the most utility. Great question. Question six, how do I make my characters feel more real and the world feel more lived in? Part of this is under your control and part of this is not under your control because you can't make somebody else, the reader, feel something. You can't force the feeling. Despite what the song says about how somebody can't fight the feeling any longer, you can't make the feeling stick. What you can do is encourage that feeling, encourage them to feel that things are more real and the world more lived in by how you describe and develop the characters and the world. That not, not just stringing together more adjectives. It's not a quantity issue. It's a matter of 
purposefulness in those adjectives. What adjectives evoke the feeling you're trying to get? Because the presence of that evocation will encourage the reader to feel it. If you want to talk about how cozy something is, rather than just say it's cozy and go on about your business, to describe it in a couple of different ways without just chaining together, you know, five adjectives for the couch does not necessarily define the couch as cozy. Cozy is the atmosphere. It's the couch plus the chair, plus the blanket, plus the pillows, plus the color, plus the rug, plus the fireplace, plus the whatever. It's about understanding what feeling you're trying to get to, putting it on the page, be it for the character or the world, because functionally when you're writing it, the distinction there is just about creating atmosphere. So, it's about getting the adjectives on the page to help evoke and encourage the evocation and declare for the reader that, yeah, it's good to feel this. If I describe this person as rugged, let's say, without necessarily using the word just by itself, I don't want to just say, Kevin is rugged, and then go on about our business. We want to describe that ruggedness so that we have, you know, three, four adjectives that what's the word I want to use, that help create the idea of rugged so that we can ice and, and top the thing off with a bow, I should say. I was going to say ice the cake, but top everything off with the word rugged. So it's rugged and then an umbrella of words beneath it. That's how you you create that. It's it's not, there's no magic trick, right? There's no like, if you use this sentence crafted this way, you'll get it. And that's that's what I want you to stop thinking about. Stop thinking about that formula. Don't Don't see it that way. Because there isn't one. That's just going to lead you to frustration. Understand that if you're trying to make something feel a certain way, let's say you want, you know, the person to come across as tired. You want the, you want the room to feel a certain way. You want the world to be seen a certain way. It's not about just being literal with the single adjective to do it. It's about that cumulative approach. I'm going to say a little bit here and a little bit over there, and then two paragraphs later, two pages later, five pages later, a chapter later, two chapters later, so that by the time we're done engaging with the whole thing, we've got this big pile of stuff, and that's where we can draw our conclusion from the most amount of data. That doesn't mean we want to have like 15 things every time, but it means you want to be savvy and careful with how you say a thing, when you say a thing, and the number of times you say a thing. If I want you to lean a certain way or start thinking in a certain way, I can't force it on you, but I can encourage it. Not so much through repetition, but through a general sense of a little bit here and a little bit there, a cumulative impact. What people are looking for when they want that real world or those real characters is relatability. More so than... Even the dynamic evocation of, speci of uh, specific adjectives. Oh, wow, you called it striking, so I know exactly what you mean. You want to get that sense of um, comfort from the way I can connect to a thing. Whether it's easy or difficult for me to understand what you're trying to say, that's going to help it feel more real to me. Whether we're talking about something positive, negative, good, bad, whatever... It's my ability to relate to it that helps me create that sense of reality from the surreality, surreality of your imagination, if that makes sense. I, I hope it does. But aim for the cumulative um, leading of the reader to the feeling or adjectives or description or idea. And you accomplish that through better quality writing. And you will have them feeling more real in the world, feeling more lived in. Great question. Question seven, in the write, critique, revise triangle, how does, it know, how does a writer know when it's time to move forward? The write, critique, revise triangle 
is a little virtuous cycle map of the process in creation. So you start at writing and then you move down to the next stage, which is you get somebody to critique it, whether that's you or another person, the item gets critiqued. And then from there, post critique with feedback, you move to revision and that leads you back to writing the next thing. This is generally the cycle, write, critique, revise, done after the draft has been completed. And a lot of people uh, who take this on while they're still doing the overall drafting find their progress very, very much slowed down because what they're trying to do, what they're trying to deal with is the idea of little incremental growth that is made better so that I can move on to the next thing and make it better rather than getting the whole thing down, getting the whole thing out, and then turning around and making it better as a result. That's that's the problem here. We don't want to do like, I'm going to work on one chapter until it's the best, then I'm going to go to the second chapter, because you'll never build momentum. You'll never really get a sense of connection between chapter to chapter, because the progress is so slow, and the tinkering with it is so intense that it's going to feel disconnected, like we're trying to make perfect individual volumes of encyclopedias on a shelf, as opposed to one very long super encyclopedia from end to end. That's that's the important thing here. How does a writer know when it's time to move forward? Well, on one hand, it's a decision. You decide that you've written enough or critiqued enough or revised enough and it's time to move on. And you're going to do that based on the whether or not the feedback is actionable, whether or not you're just plain tired of it, whether or not you're excited about moving forward. It's a decision you make. There's no magic time that says, ah, oh, it's been two weeks of revision. It's time to keep going. It's not on a schedule like that. You have to set that idea up. You have to do something with it. I can tell you that the move from writing to critique is generally best after all the writing has been done. It's going to be a lot easier to get the best value out of the critique if there's a lot of writing to look at and a lot of writing to dissect and a lot of writing to provide feedback on. And again, you can go from critique to revision. When the critique is complete, and I don't mean complete like literally every person on the planet has an opinion about it. I mean like the critique has addressed or discovered significant problems and then you're able to do something about it. When I say critique, I don't just mean like, oh, this thing sucks and disregard it. I mean more like, here are the things I see with it. Here are the problems. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Whether that's you doing it or somebody else doing it or a combination of both. Hint, it should be a combination of both. Moving forward allows you uh, greatest results when you have the most amount of material to bring to that section. So sitting down and having the best organization makes the writing easier. Sitting down and having the whole thing written makes critiquing easier. Being able to look at the full span of critique makes revision easier. When revision is made easier, the next set of writing is made easier, and so on and so forth. So it's time to move forward when you choose to. But please consider that when you think it's time to move, make sure you've got enough material to move you forward productively. Don't just move because you're bored. Don't just move because you're um, antsy or because you really just want to get to something else because you're tired of feeling stupid because everybody's telling you that your plot twist doesn't twist enough or something. Move when it's best. Move when it's functionally best. And you'll have far better results with the right critique revised triangle. Now, I do want to point out that one of the reasons why I was really ticked about not being able to answer this question on stream is that I made a graphic. I worked really hard on the arrows and the boxes and everything, but 
it's a triangle, right? As at one point, critique it a second, revise it a third with little arrows all the way around it. I was very proud of that. Maybe I'll post that in the Discord or something. But um, yeah, really, really bummed about that. On to the next question, though. Question eight. Does including a fetish in my romance novel's intimate scenes require a content or a trigger warning? It depends on what the fetish is. If we're talking about something that somebody could find particularly triggering, somebody who could be particularly made upset, bothered, hurt, or harmed by the expression of this fetish, like uh, non-consent or consensual non-consent or dubious consent or knife play or blood play or violence play or something, then yeah, if, if there's a potential for harm to another person or af- you know negative impact to another person, yes, put up a content warning, put up a trigger warning. If it is a fetish that's more benign in nature, that doesn't effectively, aggressively harm or threaten or imply violence or damage or whatever to somebody, if your fetish is just, I don't know, uh, forearms or you know a particular stern look or a tone of voice or something where there's no praise kink or something where there's no real there's no real harm or pain in transacted between people generally no it would not require a content or trigger warning you can hedge your bets by having a content and trigger warning no matter what uh it's not a bad idea to do that but in terms of requirement uh the requirement only really stems from the the negative potential impact but if you, if you want to normalize the behavior, do it all the time. Do it for the positive fetishes too, the, the lighter ones that don't in, you know, cause or potentially cause harm or, or affect. It's just simply a matter of, you know, I'm into this thing. You should know that this book has some of it in it. I would put it in there no matter what. Good question. Uh, by the way, if you're wondering where the content and trigger warnings go, they're generally on the flyleaf right up front before the book starts, usually on the acknowledgments page. Or, or somewhere in the early pages before the book really kicks off. Earlier is better than later. Do not put it on your back blurb. Do not put it on your back cover. Uh, that's going to really uh, fuck your sales because people get freaked out because they assume, oh my God, they're telling me on the back cover there has to be a lot of this shit. Make it easier for your consumer. Put it in the book. Next question. Question number nine. How do I market an unexpected POV shift in my sales copy or query? Now, when I first saw this question, I was really bothered because generally you wouldn't necessarily market an unexpected POV shift because usually an unexpected POV shift is a bad thing because all of a sudden we're following one character, then we're following another and who knows why and what the hell happened. And the reader can get easily sort of jarred out of their reading pace. And it's not something we want to stand up and be like, yep, I totally dropped the ball on point of view. That's not a great marketing point. But in thinking about it after the fact, in really kind of chewing on it and spinning my wheels on it, if it's unexpected and you tell somebody about it, then it's not, it's not unexpected anymore. If you want your sales copy or query to intimate that it's possible, intimate that, you know, um, your use of POV or your manipulation of POV is part of the story, you don't necessarily want to say, first we start talking with character A, then we go to character B, but you might want to be broad and a little vague about your POV shift and 
you know, set it up more the idea of as our story is told, dot, 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 so that there's no clear indication. Because again, if, we, if we're going to market anything, it's going to be the unexpectedness of it. But you run the risk here that the unexpectedness of it is also the thing that turns people off, which is why generally we flag unexpected POV shifts. I can't say more specifically without reading the thing, but chances are what you're thinking is a great idea is not a good idea. So use caution here. But if you really, really positively absolutely have to do it and you need a strategy to do so, try this. You're going along and you're going to tell part of the query or sales copy from your one POV one's perspective, whomever they might be. And then, much like we would query for a romance novel where we're alternating in sections of text, uh, bring up the other POV as well. Uh, you don't necessarily have to say you switch to it, but make the reader aware of it so that when the switch happens, they have some basis and reason for it. That's, that's the best. So they at least know that, oh, there are, there are POVs here, more than one, and then we can go forward. But if you're really hoping for that great gotcha moment, I'm really worried it's going to blow up in your face. I, I would not recommend an unexpected shift as part of your sales copy or query. Like if you had a story and we followed one character for 15, 20 chapters, and all of a sudden they die and the story gets picked up in, in chapter 16 or whatever by a new character... The fact that your POV gets shifted would tell me it would rob you. It would. How do I say this? Wow. Um, the fact that chapter 16 starts with a different POV character reduces the impact of the death of the first POV character. And it'll lead the reader to feel like their time has been wasted, which is a position you don't want to be in as a writer. So this is not a good thing to market. Please, 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 please reconsider. Please, oh, please, oh, please. Next question. Question 10. Can you give me a quick template for writing an email to an indie bookstore to have them stock my book? I sure can. Here we go. You ready? Let's do it. Hi, person from the bookstore. If you don't know the name of the person from the bookstore because they're not on Facebook or they're not on Instagram or you don't have some kind of social media where you get somebody's name, just address the bookstore. Hi, name of bookstore. Uh, I'm your name here. Uh, and I'm currently writing whatever you're writing, or I have blah, 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 book. What you then want to include is a way for them to get copies of the book. So I'm, I wrote book X and it is available from publisher Y. What you want to do thereafter, because every bookstore has a different process for how they handle it. Every bookstore has a different person. A one person bookstore has one person do this, but it's often farmed to another person, this idea of acquisitions for the bookstore. So you want to ask after you introduce yourself, hi, I'm person so-and-so. I wrote book X from publisher Y, and I'm wondering what your process is for stocking this book. Who do I have to email? Who do I have to call? Can I, can I set that up with you? Is there some recommendation you, the person reading this email, can make to help me get my book on your shelves? What's that process like? Thank you so much for your time. Your name here. You want to put the ball in the indie bookstore's court 
One, so they can talk about their process if they have it. Two, because you want them to lead the conversation about why they should. If you come in all hard sales, if you come in like, oh shit, I got this book and here's this thing and it does this and it does this and it does this and check this out and you know, it's just going to be salesy. And we're not so much selling directly because we're not trying to get the bookstore to act like a like a consumer. We're trying to get the bookstore to act as part of a transactional aid. They're a bookstore. They're, they're part of the commercial side rather than the purchase side. So we don't want to sell them up. We want to make the book available. We want to make the bookstore aware that they have this thing they could sell. So you want to make sure you get them talking and you want to make sure you get them asking questions. Now, this might be a simple email. This might be, hey, just call us at blah, 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 number and, and we'll get you all straightened out. And then you're just on the phone talking. And in the course of that conversation, play dumb. I don't know how else to say it so that it makes sense. Play dumb. Hi, I'm just wondering what this process is. You know, I'm new, even if you're not new. I'm new. I'm just trying to, you know, get this handled. I don't, I'm a, I'm a one person shop. So I'm just making my own stuff, handling it my way. You know, you know what the indie scene is like. Ha ha, ha ho, he he. And, uh, you know, what, advan- what, what help can you give me? Because I would really love to have my book on your shelves. I've been in your store. Uh, presumably, yes, please, please do patronize indie bookstores. You know, I, I want to support you. I want to make sure this continues. Uh, I'm trying to do this my way. I have a vision for this and I want you to play a big role in it. What, what can we do or say? Get them talking. Whether you want to put that in the email or whether we want to have that in an in-person conversation or a Zoom call or whatever, that's up to you. But the point here is we want to get them talking. We want to get them sorting everything out and telling us how to do it so that we can do it and build that relationship. This might not be done in one email. This might take a couple different emails, but it's about driving us to a conversation. Does that help? I hope it helps. It's a good question. I'm going to go to the next one. Question 11. I want to shift to direct sales of my ebooks. Oh, thank God. Shopify and WooCommerce are time consuming and frustrating. Sure, sure they are. They're often designed to be. Is Etsy a good option if I deliver via book funnel? Is there an easy method? Okay, I want to address these things kind of out of order. Is there an easy method? No. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. There's no easy method. There's not going to be an easy method. And it kind of bugs me that you've asked for an easy method. Because this isn't easy. If it were easy, you wouldn't be asking the question. And if it were easy, people wouldn't be struggling with it. It's not easy. It's not meant to be easy. It's meant to be useful. And that's a different thing. So don't look for easy Don't look for shortcuts because all that ends up screaming is I'm lazy and I don't want to do any work or I don't value my intelligence enough and I think I'm stupid. So I want something, you know, really simple and that's not giving yourself enough credit either. So let's avoid all of that and just agree that this shit is hard and it's going to take time and frustration is a part of learning how to do a thing. It does get easier over time, but that's because you have experience and exposure to it. So that one's handled. Is Etsy a good option if I deliver via book funnel? Well, no, just no, because you're complicating the process. Shopify and WooCommerce are time-consuming and frustrating. Absolutely. There are easier ways to do this. You can look at a service like Payhip or Gumroad, although the margins on Gumroad are pretty, you know, jacked. But you can just straight, 
use what, you know, go to another service like Payhip or Gumroad. Those are the two I recommend. Payhip is my personal favorite where you can set it up, set up a very simple shop, which is functionally Shopify and WooCommerce on somebody else's behalf and then post your thing and then deliver that straight to it. You don't necessarily need book funnel and you don't need to go through the expense of, or, or the time expense of setting up Etsy. Etsy is great for physical product. And BookFunnel, you know, is BookFunnel. They're looking to be another middleman between you and your process, thus making the idea of direct sales all the more difficult. But don't worry, they're, they're, they're you know, waving their dick around, flashing the idea of reader magnets and arcs, giving you all the trappings of a publisher without necessarily being a publisher, but very happily collecting that $100 a year or whatever it might be. Oh, golly gee, aren't they just so swell? It's the publishing process with just a different coat of paint on it. If you want direct sales, reduce the number of steps, reduce the number of websites, reduce the number of things somebody has to do to go get it. You go to Gumroad, you go to Payhip, you go straight to with one page, one site, scroll down, click the thing you want, goes right to a pay processor, and then it gets delivered. You don't need these extra steps. <clears throat> the those extra steps, those trappings, those arcs, those reader magnets, all that shit is is supposed to be there to allay the imp the fear or the doubt that the reader has. If you've done strong enough marketing, if you're generally not following the herd, but you're able to stand on your own two feet with a strong marketing message, you don't need to do that other shit. Yes, Shopify and WooCommerce are a pain in the ass. There are some great YouTube tutorials on them, but okay, Okay, sure. Let's assume you just don't want to do them. But by and large, Payhip and Gumroad are straightforward, great ways to do it. In the same way that Bandcamp used to be a great thing to do for music. Um, the, the whole, or if you don't want, even want to do that, um, you can set up a single PayPal link on your website and sell the PDF directly through automation. Let's say like something through ConvertKit if you really want to keep it simple. But the whole point is to reduce the number of hurdles and steps. And an Etsy shop is just another layer, just another thing, just another element you're going to have to push and market. Something like Gumroad and Payhip can be just flat, single storefront pages. <clears throat> they don't require a lot of extra tinkering. They don't require an extra lot of proffering. And you won't have to deal with the questionable author hurdle of, hey, book readers, come to Etsy for my book. Because when people think Etsy, they're going to think crafts. They're going to think about handmade options. They're going to think about not book stuff. Just because Etsy is there as a viable sales platform for some things does not mean it's a viable sales platform for all things. And you don't need to adopt the trappings of publishers, book funnel, in order to be a publisher. You know, the slave need not use the master's enterprise. You know what I'm saying? So what you what you, and the whole point in direct sales is to make the sale direct. Go straight to somebody. You know, no DRM, no difficult management, just hey, pay this, get this done, straightforward. It doesn't need to be more complicated than that. You don't need extra steps like that. Payhip.com, gumroad.com. I like payhip, it's a lot easier for me. Um and when I say easy, it means I, I got it up and running quickly and I was able to do it while eating a burrito. So, and it, it just means I get to offer a link and have a promo on the podcast sometimes. 
I don't need to tend to an Etsy shop. I don't need to try and fight against the resistance of Etsy. I don't go to Etsy for books. I don't have to deal with yet another middleman and book funnel. I don't have to deal with, you know, website plugins like Shopify and WooCommerce, which, although useful and practical when you get them set up, can for some people be a pain in the ass. You want to make this as simple as possible, straightforward for the consumer, not for yourself. Do it for them, not for you. Keep it easy. Don't go for the lazy shortcut. Just go for the way that's going to give them the easiest chance of making the sale. Because that way, once the, the path to the sale is straightforward, you can spend your time and focus on the marketing itself. How are you going to get people to the link? How are you going to talk about the book? How are you going to make it sound appealing? And then straight and direct somewhere. That's the route to go. Direct sales should be more of a tool for more people, but it does require work. And services like BookFunnel and, and all the book newsletter spawn sites, they're, they're getting in the way while trying to talk about how they're assisting in the same way that an agent, a pimp, swears they're uh, helping you publish, but really they're just getting in the way between you and your money. Direct sales are the way to go. Straightforward. It's clean and simple, just like selling anything hand-to-hand. Question 12, if luck plays such a large part in traditional publishing, what exactly can the writer control in the process? I love this question. I love this question for its inherent aggressiveness. Yeah, luck plays a huge part in traditional publishing. Luck plays a huge part in self-publishing as well, but at least the luck for self-publishing comes in from the consumer end, which is universal in all forms of publishing. Luck in the traditional publishing means you have to you know, jump through enough hoops and impress enough people for them to take a chance on you. What you can control is not so much them taking a chance, but you can encourage them to take a chance because your work is of a higher quality than theirs. I don't mean like you you formatted the PDF in a certain way better than somebody else did. I mean the text on the page and the movie it puts in the reader's brain is better put together and better composited than somebody else's. That's the part you can control. You can always control the writing in the same way that you can always down the road control the revision process. You can control the writing and stronger writing, better quality writing, writing that holds up, writing that works, writing that puts that movie in the reader's head is going to survive the publishing process with fewer obstacles and survive it with fewer publisher-facing revisions. Hey, we're going to change this to make it more marketable. We're going to cut this because it's too. it doesn't fit our vision of things. Th- those cuts are easier to weather and sometimes... Uh, There are fewer of them because the writing is so strong. The writer always controls the writing. The luck is a combination of universe quantum mechanics as well as just um, somebody's gut feeling and things uh, things you cannot account for, budgets, structure, stuff like that. So control the writing. Control what you produce. And you will have a heck of a lot better time putting everything together for uh, traditional publishing, which I still think you shouldn't do. But that's a different question. I think we should all go back to self-publishing and direct sales like the previous question. But that's because I want to see more people profit and I want to see more people feel successful. Even if their audience isn't measured in these big, giant social media numbers, I want everybody to have a community of people they reach 
And if they want to grow that community, it's up to everybody to work together, not just some big giant corporate engine. Great question. Next. Here we go. Last one, 13. Question 13. Why don't more people leave book reviews? All right. Okay. <clears throat> question 13 is a good one because my answer is kind of spicy. It's, it's, it's a great way to wrap up our hour together here. More people don't leave book reviews because they're lazy, because they can't be bothered, because they think no one will read them, because they think they don't matter, because it takes time, because they don't think they can write a good review, because they think, hey, I really enjoyed this book. I loved the plot. I liked this character. This was really great. They feel like that's dumb, and they need to either write in some kind of great literary academic sense and discuss the nature of the Ludo narrative or something. Um, they don't. You can just leave a review. It's algorithmically important, but people don't value their work like that. They don't value their impact to a, to a writer. They, they get lazy. They're like, no, I bought a book. I'm done with, you know, I'm, I'm done in this interaction. I'm out, son. And that's, that's terrible. Um, the number of books sold versus the number of reviews written is always grossly disproportionate because people don't think it makes a difference. It takes too much time. They think they don't get read. So what's the point of me doing a thing if no one's going to read my review? The writer will read your review. The More importantly, the algorithm will read your review. And that helps everybody. But people don't leave reviews because they're lazy. They don't want to do that. And they usually, for the most part, don't want to help somebody succeed once the transaction is over. But they will be very quick to complain about it. They'll complain to their friends. They'll complain to people in their circles. They'll complain on the internet if it's real bad. They're very happy to complain, but they're very opposed to being positive because it seems like complaining takes no time at all. We don't think about the time when we t say that this thing is a piece of shit, but we do think about the time when we want to say something positive because we're embarrassed. It is the most aggravating thing in the world to solicit testimonials and positive reviews because it should seem really easy. If you liked my thing, say something nice, and then when you're met with crickets, the writer's left with the impression that nobody liked my thing. If you're out there listening and you're okay with that sort of situation and you're okay with leaving somebody thinking that you didn't like their stuff when you did, cool, I can't do anything about that. But if you actually liked their thing... Take five minutes while you're having your cup of coffee and write a review. It can be short. It can be a couple sentences. That's all it takes. And what that's going to do is not only buoy the writer's confidence, it's going to tell the algorithm, particularly on Amazon, but elsewhere depending on where you're posting it, it's going to say, hey, somebody's talking about this thing. Bump it up a little bit so more people see it. And if more people see it, there's a potential for you know, we talked about luck in the last question. There's a potential for more people to make that purchase. And if more people make that purchase, then, you know, it helps. And more people will possibly leave more reviews. And the next thing you know, the writer is more successful than they were. And you can control that. You can do something about that. I just don't know why you're not. Leave some reviews. It makes a difference. And that is the uh, quick and dirty version of the writer's chat for April the 5th. Uh, thank you so much for being patient with this. I'm so sorry I had to cancel. I hate that I had to cancel. Um, I hate that I had to cancel uh, tonight, Thursday, April the 6th stream as well. I'm just not organized enough for it. I would have been, but scheduling, uh, which it was supposed to be on direct sales. The thing we talked about in this question, 
or in question uh, 11, I think it was, or 10. So um, that'll get rescheduled for a later date. I want to thank you so much for listening to this. I hope you're doing well, and I will talk to you very, very soon. See you.